Welcome to the Commonwealth Club Radio Program, America's longest-running radio show. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club, a nonpartisan, nonprofit civic forum that's brought people together from a wide range of viewpoints to explore important topics for 120 years. Thanks for joining us today. Seattle-based conservative radio host and commentator Jason Rance is a rising star on the right, making frequent appearances on Fox News and The Ben Shapiro Show. He joined us in October for a conversation with political analyst Melissa Kane about the state of American big cities and his contention that they're being ruined by what he calls woke Democrats and left-wing policies. Taking aim at crime, drug addiction, homelessness, left-wing school indoctrination, inclusive housing policies, and outrageous taxes, as he puts it, Rant says the effects of left-wing policies always spread, which he says should alarm Americans regardless of their political leanings. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club series on ethics and accountability, generously underwritten by the Travers Family Foundation. Now, here's Jason Rantz and Melissa Kane. Hi, everyone. Hello. Thank you for coming out. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. Before we get started, uh, a couple of reminders. First, we want to thank very much the Travers Family Foundation for supporting tonight's ethics and accountability program. Also, if you have any questions for our guest, please write them on those question cards that were on your seats. And if you're joining us online through YouTube, you can send us questions in the chat. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker. He's the host of the Jason Ranch Show on KTTH Radio in Seattle, Washington. He's a frequent guest on Fox News and the author of a new book, What's Killing America? Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jason Ranch. Thanks for being here, Jason. You want to kick us off with a little, an excerpt there? Yes. And we chose the perfect excerpt from the introduction. So it actually sets up the, the actual book. Activists on the radical left are more organized than those on the right. They're more organized than those of you who don't have a firm ideological position. You vote for who you think best serves your community and believe no one party can completely define your interests and views. You like some ideas on the left, others on the right, and you vote with your gut not with a political identity you casually identify with. How in the world do you find like-minded people to join you in a political fight to retake your communities? And even if you could find them, would you have time to do what's necessary to make meaningful change? The radical left has a set of ideologically motivated professional activists who show up to meetings in the middle of the day when you're at work, on a Tuesday evening when you're preparing dinner for your family, or when you're picking up your son or daughter from soccer practice. They endlessly scroll social media looking for protests to attend or new causes to embrace. They share information with a community they've curated to help promote their activism while you're online paying bills, finding family recipes on a budget, or looking for a movie to watch with the kids. It's hard for you to organize because you have jobs and lives, families and responsibilities. Who wants to spend a Thursday evening at a city council meeting when you could be at home spending quality time with your spouse and kids or grandkids going to a concert, relaxing in front of a movie, or reading a book. Believe me, I get it. But when you choose not to engage more in the community, you've unintentionally ceded power to the radical left. They know you don't show up to meetings or town halls, so they fill the empty seats with the purpose of convincing lawmakers to take their positions and transform our cities. 
Sure, in Democrat-run cities, it's much easier for the radical left to convince lawmakers to take their side. They share a general political view and see the world through the same social justice lens. But why should we make it so easy for them? Why not put up a little resistance and inspire those who are not politically motivated, who see what's going on and are displeased, so that we can win small victories before, ultimately, winning the war for the future of our country? Why not connect the dots for those who don't understand or even see what's going on, so that we can explain away most of what's destroying our neighborhoods by directly tying it to a radical policy that won't ever produce the results we deserve? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, So... Jason, for the folks here in California, you're based in Seattle. Can you give us a little bit of your background and tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. I I actually am from Los Angeles, which is where I spent most of my life. I've been working in radio since I was 15 years old. I'm now 41 years old. Tinder profile says 28. We're going to keep it that way for a bit. Uh, I've basically been doing radio for my entire life, and I found a niche in Seattle where I moved about 15 years or so ago and I cover essentially what I think is not getting covered locally. I try to connect the dots. I talk a lot about the, the policy decisions that are being made. I host a four-hour weekday talk show, and then I do Fox News uh, pretty frequently. Four hours? I, I talk a lot. <laughs> wow. I'm a talker. <laughs> and is it all on Seattle politics, or is it national politics? Or so it, it's, it's a mix. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. we do a lot of local stories, but I talk about what's going on nationally. And all national stories are essentially, they, they become local. So it's really easy to tie it in. Plus, I don't want to just talk about local stories. I, I, I have a, a fix I need to get. So why write, this is your first book. It is. Why write the book? I, I wrote the book because I was noticing trends that were unfolding in city after city after city. And I I talk a lot about this on my show, but also for Fox News, where I spend almost all my time talking about national stories. And I saw the same scripts unfolding over and over and over again. And when you do just even a casual dive, you see it's connected to an ideological position that's the same. And in many cases, it's the same exact policy or strategy. And obviously, as a conservative, I think that uh, these issues are destroying our cities, hence the subtitle of the book. And I wanted to give that information out, because even as I was talking to a lot of folks who ideologically align with me, they weren't connecting the dots the same way. They knew just instinctively something was going wrong in their, their cities. And obviously in Seattle, very similar to San Francisco, and there was a rising crime rate, the homelessness was out of control, there was drug use that was out in the open, and yet weirdly spending a whole lot more money living in those communities. And COVID really exposed a lot of what was going on. And I could ask them, what do you think is to blame? And they might say Democrats, which, I mean, technically, I suppose it's true. I believe that. But that's not really the answer. It's much deeper than that. Well, I'm sure people come up to you all the time and say, hey, I'm unhappy about this thing. And I know you're you're the guy who talks about these things in Seattle. But how often do they know who their supervisor is or who the mayor is half the time? I mean, is, isn't a big part yeah. of this issue pe- needing to get people engaged? hundred percent. I mean, and, and most of us are guilty of this. You don't do the research that's necessary before you're voting for a judge. If you don't have kids, you're not spending as much time likely with the uh, school board races as you otherwise would or should. And you say, oh, I like this person's name. I had an aunt that was named Kathy. It's like, okay, yeah, we got it. But that's not a great way to go ahead and vote for folks. And I, I come from a position in part because I have to as a Republican in Seattle 
I don't care if someone disagrees with me politically and makes a decision that I wouldn't make. I do care if they're making a decision without any knowledge whatsoever. Or, and this is the same with Republicans. There's an R next to the name, so I'm going to vote for that person. I prefer that generally, but not always. And I don't think that that's an informed position. Well, one of the things you talk about in the in the intro that you just went through and that you do talk about in the book is sort of encouraging people to get engaged. And there is this, I think, sometimes an issue with, with folks on the right where I'm old enough to remember the contract with America. Uh, but it seems like if, if, you're, if your platform is really no, right, if your platform is yeah. let's stop all of these things that are harming our city, wouldn't it be better to have a more sort of affirmative agenda around what people are interested in, and that seems to be lacking a bit on the other side. Well, it, it can. I think it depends on where you're, where we're talking about. I think regionally there are lots of really good ideas that just don't get a whole lot of attention because they're coming from a smaller group of people who generally don't have any political power anyway. And so I think there's a disincentive to spend too much time on the good ideas. I do often think, though, you're right, that People will say that this is wrong. It's like, yeah, no kidding. We know that it's wrong. It turns out we don't like homicides. But what's an answer to respond to that? What can we do that might actually work? Oftentimes people will say, well, we need innovative solutions. Not always. Sometimes we just need to do what was working before that we stopped doing. And I think it's about recognizing that and then becoming an evangelist for a position. The people who do show up to these meetings, and I spend a whole lot of time almost hyper-focused on this, we cede so much power to one group of people who can go to a meeting on a Tuesday at 11 a.m., whereas you've got a job or afterwards you're spending time with your kid. Like, I get that. But by not showing up, we're giving so much power away. So what else can we do if you realistically can't show up to these meetings? And most people can't. What else can you do? Well, it starts by being knowledgeable, and then it starts by making sure that you're arguing the right way for your position. And I think that that's what's missing in a lot of cases. Well, I mean... You've watched plenty of local board meetings. I, I certainly have watched many, many board of supervisors They're meetings. They're so fun. Can we just acknowledge that? But you've seen, and I know I've seen, situations where you, you're literally watching members of this body getting persuaded by yep. the loudest voices in the room. And it, it shouldn't be that way, right? I mean, it shouldn't just be it like shouldn't. who's able to show up and who just doesn't have a job or has a job that allows them to do this. But, but it, it really actually, to a, a shocking degree, is. We see it happen in real time. There was a case not long ago where Seattle was deciding whether or not it was going to recriminalize drugs, which it eventually did. But the big vote where we had an actual piece of policy that I think was reasonable and what we needed to do, one guy was getting yelled at and he was the deciding vote and he switched at the very last minute. And you could see it happen in real time. And that's just so depressing, regardless of the position that you take. I I don't want to see anyone act like that because all you're doing is encouraging those same recalcitrant activists to show up and just yell at you. I I just don't think that that's the best way to move forward. What are some of the solutions to to this kind of issue? Because we obviously can't expect parents of small Mm -hmm. children, for example, to to sit and watch Board of Education meetings and fully understand them and read the packet and all of that. So what I think is important to do is to understand how the party in power uses language to their benefit. I talk a lot about the power of language, where if you control words and you can redefine words, well, you're going to win every single debate. It's actually quite easy. So first, it's to understand what's actually being proposed and not just say, well, it sounds good, I'm going to go with it. And I'll give you an example. Harm reduction as a strategy. 
I think is responsible for the rise in drug overdoses, the fatal overdoses through the roof nationally and in these cities that have really embraced harm reduction. And they embraced it a while ago, but during COVID it all accelerated. I could ask the average person to define harm reduction on the street. Not a single person will be able to. Now, if I pitched it to them the way that it was pitched originally, they would say, yeah, that sounds great. How would you love it if we were dealing with an addict? We would do whatever we needed to do to keep them alive just for a bit so we can get them into treatment. We're going to do whatever we can to mitigate the risks is the compassionate and humane way to treat this. I would say, yeah, that sounds great. And originally, when it was pitched to me, before I even knew what harm reduction was, I'm like, okay, yeah, let's Who give it a shot. Who doesn't love harm reduction? Who let's reduce harm. harm. So, yeah, how, do you support harm? <laughs> it's a really easy way to convince someone that your side is compassionate and you're going to get the results that you say you're after. But then when you dive into how the money is being spent, it's being spent on needles, it's being spent on pipes for fentanyl and smoking meth. If you were to explain it to them that way, I don't think you would get the same buy-in. You, you would get some buy-in, sure. There are people who, on the right and on the left, who support legalization of drugs and don't think it should be criminalized at all, but I don't think you would get the same kind of response that made it so easy for this policy to be put in place all across the country. And it's not just in Democrat-run cities, it's in the counties and it's in the states. Well, we actually just recently, I think it was yesterday or maybe the day before, ABC7, I don't know if you guys saw the, the story, did a story where they actually had a, a person, sort of an undercover situation, mm-hmm. where they, they were getting these kits where they had pipes and things. And then they asked, do you have any pamphlets that would tell me about rehab? What resources do you have? Do you have a phone number I can call to see about getting help? Nothing. That, that should be a problem nothing. to folks who, even if you support the harm reduction model, if the whole goal is to ultimately get them clean, to get their life in order, you would at least want the bare minimum of, we're here for you when you're ready. Just the, just the bare minimum. But they're not providing that. They think it's stigmatizing to the drug user to judge. And I'm okay with judging uh, addiction. I think it's hurting you. And unless we're willing to say that and treat it, like that, you're, you're not going to get any results. And we know it works because it's worked before and it currently works. When we have a carrot and stick approach, when we actually show that there are consequences to this continued addiction, all of a sudden it may take a while and it may be expensive, but no more expensive than it is right now. And people start to go into the right direction. And of course, you deal with the culture of drug use, which I think is a big issue right now. And how did you sort of narrow down the issues for the book? Part one is about is about crime and part mm-hmm. two is about other kind of lifestyle issues. And how did you how did you go about doing that? One of the things that I really liked about the book is you really bring in personal stories, human beings who've experienced yeah. certain things, finding those stories and weaving them in <clears throat> was a really important part of making these sort of issues more real. And so tell us about the process. Yeah, so I always wanted to do it in two parts. The first part, even though it's more crime related, it's really how policies are impacting your everyday life. And then part two is more about how it's telling you how to live these policies. And so I was just looking across the country. I was focusing on the top 20 cities um, to see if there were any themes. And I already went into this knowing what the themes are going to be because uh, on Fox and on my radio show, I cover crime, homelessness, and drugs. That's my sort of my go-to topic. That's what I'm known for. And so that was always clearly going to be a part of it. But of course, as just someone who lives in a city, what impacts my life? 
talking with folks, reading their emails or tweets when they would come in. What are they talking about? And the more you dive into it, you start to see these themes. And because they're so similar from city to city to city, it makes it a lot easier to focus on an issue that's going to impact the most amount of people. Are there any cities doing it right? So I, I, I think it's, it's better to say that there are every city can be doing something the right way, and some most are if you look at it in a very specific way. So Austin... <laughs> squint I, real hard. It, you really do, because <laughs> when we're talking about the cities that I focus on, it's because they've been... I focus on them because they've been overcome by folks who I believe to be radical. I'm not talking about Democrats, although they're on the Democrat side, but I think that they're radical Democrats, and there's a difference. Because of the way that they operate, it's very hard to say one city is doing everything correct because it's seen through that lens. So I think Austin is a good example of at least programs about how it's starting to go after homelessness, where you're going to live in a community, we're going to put you in a tiny home village or whatever the version is that they use there, basically saying, but you're going to have some responsibilities and it's not a free-for-all. We're not doing a housing first model. That doesn't actually work. We want you to have some buy-in. We want you to have some skin in the game and we want you to follow some set of rules. And the people who do that, the ones who enroll in those programs, not just in Austin, but Austin's doing this particularly well, you're seeing tremendous results. The, The first time that someone gets that paycheck after living on the streets for, in some cases, a decade or more, just to see how they react to that and how it inspires them is really just amazing. And you get, you get the sense real quickly that this is, precise, this is just human nature. We go back to when we got our first paychecks, how exciting it was. Now, all of a sudden, there's some hope for these individuals, and they're starting to think about what life was like before they ended up becoming homeless. And I think when they go into it that way, when you approach it in that way, where there are some consequences to criminal behavior, that works. And the cities that adopt that and the cities that put money into programs that do that see the biggest results. Well, even in San Francisco, you know, we, we've been pursuing a housing first model for quite a while. And it's only recently, I want to say probably within the last one to two years, that there has been more emphasis put on shelters and trying to, in addition to maybe some housing, of course, build some temporary housing sure. so that we can you know, sort of help people. But that, that's a good way to, to read the language. What do they mean? So housing first, again, on paper, sounds great. And I kept hearing over and over and over again when I would do panels on homelessness, housing first, and look at Salt Lake. They're doing it. They got to functional zero homelessness. No, they didn't. They told you that, but the data never backed that up. They were comparing two completely separate numbers. And every year since they declared that homelessness was under control, functional zero, it's gotten worse. And they're the ones that we're pointing to and saying, see, housing first works. But they're not a success story. And the same thing is true here as it is with, with addicts. If you give someone a home, they are technically not homeless for the moment, but you're not addressing why they're homeless to begin with. And there are various reasons, drug addiction, mental health issues that go untreated. Sometimes they are just like me and you who are one missed paycheck away from landing on the streets. You go after it in different ways. But this is just putting someone who's a drug addict in a home with no conditions of entry and a guarantee that so long as they don't murder someone, you get that subsidized home for the rest of your life. I, I don't think that that's treating anything, and I don't think that that's compassionate or fair to the individual, nor to the taxpayers. They weren't born homeless, so unless you go after the reason why they're homeless, Housing First is never going to work, and that's why it's been such an utter failure, and yet adopted statewide, adopted nationwide. 
Well, the chapter about the Salt Lake City experiment is is one that I definitely recommend because I remember that was the thing. I remember yep. them talking about that and and thinking, oh, well, that's great. And there were all these leaders from Utah, just very proud of them, you know. Yeah, <laughs> very I think proud that they were they well done. intentioned. Yeah, I don't think that they were doing anything with the intent of like fooling people. I think they were fooling themselves. And it got so much coverage from the media, nation, San Francisco Chronicle. I remember one of their editorials. We got to do it here. Look at what's happening in Salt Lake. Daily Show sends their reporters down there and they make a big deal about it, mocking all the Republicans at the time who are saying, I don't think that this is going to work. And they pretended that it was as simple as just saying, oh, it turns out giving someone a home actually solves homelessness, but it, it really doesn't. I didn't intend to write a chapter on this. <laughs> I, 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 as I was doing the research, because I, I was curious, I always kind of knew the surface level, but then I took a really deep dive into the numbers. I was like, okay, I'm going to do my own chapter now on this. It was only supposed to be a subsection of a chapter, and it became its own. Well, you paint a pretty grim picture in the book of, of cities, uh, particularly West Coast cities, you know, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco have all definitely had our issues. Yet you live in one. So yep. explain. I live in one because I'm not going to be chased out of a city that I live in because the people in charge disagree with me politically. I, I see a problem. I'd like to actually help solve it. I think that there's a lot of benefit to living in a place that you talk about a lot. Uh, you experience it from a different level. You have um, skin in the game. It's very eye-opening when you are living the results of policies that you criticize, and or the opposite, living the results of policies that you love. And sometimes uh, it opens your own eyes. Like, okay, maybe my position on this was not necessarily the right one. I've gone through that throughout my adult life of, I think I believe this, and then now I'm experiencing it. I don't believe that anymore. I've gone through that, and I think that that's incredibly important. And beyond that, the issues that happen is not Las Vegas. What happens in Seattle or San Francisco or New York, like it spreads everywhere. So eventually it's going to come to your neighborhood anyway. And that's what I tell people, because I I used to get early on with my radio show several years ago, I would get text messages or calls basically saying, I'm done with Seattle. I can't handle it anymore. I'm moving to Enumclaw. I'm moving to Spokane. I'm moving to Vancouver, Bellingham. Now I'm getting... Pretty much the same people saying, oh my God, it's come to, to Bellingham and Enumclaw and Bellevue. I can't do it anymore. What are we supposed to do? It, it eventually comes for you. So, but, you know, but if cities do attract a certain kind of person, I mean, look, especially in California, we've got initiative, recall, referendum. I mean, the cities are the way they are because of voters to a large degree. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you can only blame you know, shiftless politicians you know, to, to a point, but there are ballot initiatives and other things that, that we've done and other sort of people that we've supported that, that have made this. And so you know, in some sense, you know, what do you say to this issue of these are democratically elected reforms? Yeah. Are people just, for folks who are in the unhappy minority, I mean, what, what can they do? We get the government that we deserve. And wherever it is you live, you're getting the government that you deserve. Now, uh, does every individual voter deserve it? No, but that's how it works. And so I, I truly believe, and I'm, you and I were talking about this earlier, I'm hypercritical of local media, of which I'm a member, uh, but I'm open about my bias. And my position does not rely on having access to any politician versus most TV reporters. They do. If, if that's what they cover, they have to have access to the governor or the mayor or the DA, whatever it happens to be. So I don't think that they're as critical as they need to be. I don't think that they're connecting dots. And I think that the average voter, even though they understand something's going wrong, they don't know why. 
And they certainly, no one wants to believe that a politician that they support or a party that they support on either side, no one wants to acknowledge that that's the problem. And so they don't really know what to do. And that was a big piece of why I wrote What's Killing America is that I wanted to connect those dots. I come from a state that a few years ago passed a ban on vehicular pursuits. Police were not able to uh, pursue criminals engaged in non-violent felonies in which originally it had to have um, probable cause, which is an incredibly high bar in a circumstance like that. It used to be reasonable suspicion. So now they got reasonable suspicion for certain violent felonies, but for the most part, you can't chase. So people don't realize that somehow. I talk about it all the time, but not everyone's listening to my show. And it's a problem because we've had a rash of mostly teenagers nowadays stealing a car, driving it into a storefront, stealing whatever's in that store, and then driving off in another stolen vehicle. They don't have to speed away. They could literally drive the speed limit and drive off. As the cop is there, the cop cannot pursue. And I talk to a lot of police chiefs and, and the sheriffs in the state. I'm like, well, what do the people say? Oh, they're blaming us. They don't think we're willing to do the job. They don't think that we're willing to chase. I have to tell them that, no, this is a policy. I'd love for it to be changed, but that's the reality. So if you're not getting that in local news, because everyone has their own lives and their jobs and whatnot, how are they supposed to know? So they end up voting for the same people who are pursuing this to begin with. And yet the polling, by the way, overwhelmingly says the same thing. And it's been mostly the case in the cities that I cover. People recognize there's a problem. They don't like it. They maybe disagree with how to fix it, but they certainly would not knowingly vote for the same policies that they're currently complaining about, and yet they do. And I surmise it's because they don't realize that that's what they're doing. But isn't it also an issue of what matters, right? Voters, you know, let's say you've got 10 issues and maybe you poll people and Mm -hmm. you go, well, why why are you electing these people over here? Well, maybe I've got my one issue that I care very deeply about, and I'm going to vote for the politician that aligns with me on that issue, even though I'm not crazy about the other nine. Sure. In terms of, you know, why did, why are the politics not lining up with what people's stated interests are? Is that the issue that they just, they care, but not enough to start electing new it, people? It, it can be. I've noticed that, and this is not some like huge uh, light bulb moment for me, but when you're impacted personally by something, that's when you start to pay attention to it more. The problem I have with that, even though it is a truth, is that we're having a crime crisis in a lot of these cities, and certainly over the course of the last two and a half years we have. I don't want people to suddenly care about crime because they just had a break-in, or God forbid someone they know or maybe themselves were injured, assaulted. I'd prefer them paying more attention. And you're right, there there's certainly folks who have their one issue, right? I think nationally we certainly see that for, for Democrat voters around abortion. They, they might disagree with everything else, but this is on this one issue, that's what they... I totally get that. Then you're going to have to sacrifice some quality of life issues. That That's just the reality, that if you're not looking at these issues more holistically, and you're not paying that close attention, you're going to end up having to suffer some sort of consequence. And I just want at least people to go into that knowing it. And I don't know how often people think about it in those terms. We do it just because it's second nature. But how often do people step back and say, okay, I'm going to reflect on my positions. And again, I get it. So hopefully people will start to shift a little bit. Chicago is a great example of this. Chicago gets rid of Lori Lightfoot, who was a disaster for them, very far to the left. You would think that they would go with someone who's a little bit more moderate. And he wasn't even that moderate, the guy that they were... It was a Democrat versus a Democrat. 
they end up going with a guy who's even farther to the left than Lori Lightfoot. And now all of a sudden, you're seeing people in communities speaking up on issues that they previously didn't, one including immigration, which I talk about in the book. All of a sudden, they're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're giving away our rec center or our senior center to folks who are in this country illegally. And while I want to be compassionate and understanding, I also live in this community and our community is not doing so well. So what are you doing for us? All of a sudden, you're you're seeing that pushback in New York as well. And I think that that's going to hurt at some point. But I I just wish we wouldn't have to get to that point in order for people to to spend a little bit more time thinking about the decisions that they're making. Well, you know, and you end up in places like San Francisco where, you know, you're trying to deal with an issue like crime. And you've got the police chief. You've got the mayor who appoints the police chief. You have the police commission, which sets forth the rules that govern the police. You've got the staffing of the police issue. You've got board of supervisors members who appoint some of the people on the police commission, but not all. You know, it'd be like, so it's, it can be a little hard to know where to totally. aim when you've got that concern. Let's assume you're in a place where you're like, yeah, okay, this is my issue. <laughs> I'm going for it. Where do you where do you put the focus? You have to do some work. There's no doubt about that. I, I, I try to do a lot of the work for individuals, Uh, Even if they don't agree with where it is I I come out on an issue, at least I'm telling you how things are happening and why they're happening. So you got to start somewhere. I just hope people will do a little bit more of the work. And the the folks that I talk to on a regular basis and the folks who reach out to me when they see me on, on Fox or listen to the show, they're starting to talk in those terms. And I can appreciate that because you just need one person who then talks to someone else, who talks to someone else, who talks to someone else. And all of a sudden you've created a little bit of a group that you're now getting more active uh, in the community. And maybe one in your group is able to go to one of those meetings. Maybe one is a parent or two are parents. And all of a sudden they're telling the single people who don't have kids what's on the line. Those are the kinds of conversations that I think not only are meaningful, but we see them make change. We saw that here in San Francisco with Chesa Boudin. We saw it with the school board directors. We've seen it in other states where, and it's not just Loudoun County, uh, but we saw in other counties and cities and states, parents getting together and saying, I don't like going away from a merit-based system. My kid is working his or her tail off to get to this point. I'm instilling in them these values, and now you're telling me they don't matter. The parents, although it hasn't been perfect, but the parents who get together have seen significant victories legal victories in some cases because they learned what was going on and they said, look, we have shared interests here. Let's actually pursue for some change. This is the Commonwealth Club Radio Program. Thank you for joining us as we hear Jason Rance in conversation with Melissa Kane. I'm Gloria Duffy. Get the inside scoop on the Commonwealth Club, our events, our travel program, and more by subscribing to our email newsletter at commonwealthclub.org slash email. Now, back to our program. Right. Well, I mean, it, it, that's one of the things your book talks about is, you know, how to get people to pick an issue and really immerse themselves in it. Why don't you run for office? That was one of the, I was looking around and seeing what people were saying. And one of the comments yes. was, why doesn't Jason put himself out there? Because I like what I'm doing now. I don't want the spotlight on me. I want to put the spotlight on other people. I've, I've never been interested in running for office I, for whatever reason. I just don't want to have to worry about everything I say and do and wondering if I'm going to have a job tomorrow. Oh, I work in media, actually. I do have to worry about that. Uh, I, I like to do some of the nerdy work behind the scenes. I, I like to, to highlight stuff. I like the radio job. I like 
being in front of a television camera. I like the writing aspect. I don't want to perform, though, 24-7. And you always have to be on as a politician. Why not pick a, a subject? I mean, you, you call for people to pick an issue and get dedicated and devoted to it. Is your issue just more public education, or is there a specific of the of the the number of issues in the book? Is there one yeah. specifically that you're you're really passionate about? I, I'm very passionate about homelessness. I mm-hmm. do a lot of work that I don't talk about within the homeless community and and working with groups and trying to get people to go on the right path. Uh, that for me is what's calling my name. I also am very passionate about uh, issues around policing. I, that's, those are the two issues that I talk about most on my show and write about the most. As a voter, those are also things that I pay close attention to. But obviously, if you're in a position like I am, where you're paid to read the news and know about the news and know policy, you can't help but be informed on all of these different issues and then have conflicting positions. Like you just, you, You're in that position. I, I enjoy it. I like it. So I don't have to pick just one or two issues, even though those two are very personal to me. Uh, Okay. Questions from the audience. Thank you for speaking about engagement. What are your thoughts around precinct strategies and mobilizing Republican voices to be more visible and active in changing liberal-run cities like Seattle, San Francisco, and the surrounding suburbs? Uh, Don't do that. You shouldn't do that. You're not going to elect a Republican in most of these cities, certainly not at the beginning. The cities that I focus on are run by radicals, and oftentimes you're only getting a radical versus maybe a moderate Democrat. Put your energy and focus on the moderate Democrat. I'm under no illusion I'm not going to be happy with anyone in the city of Seattle that ends up getting elected. I'm just not going to be happy, and I'm okay with that for now. Ultimately, I want to get people away from the radical side of things. Just moderate a little bit. And that's when you can start to really position to get a Republican or a moderate Republican or an independent, maybe someone who not quite sure where they are into office. And then you can make that that shift. But I'm just I'm all about getting away from the radicals. And usually that means you're not putting a Republican into the primary. That's not going to help. And you don't have enough voters to get that done anyway. So focus where you're going to have the biggest impact. Now, if you come from a neighborhood, when we're talking about like the state legislature, that's a little bit different sometimes. And if it truly is a purple district, that's when you got to mobilize. That's when you have to create your own little group of folks who are committed to maybe one or two issues. Each person has a different issue. You're actually going to have to knock on some doors, send some text messages to friends and family members and coworkers who won't rat you out to HR for talking politics. Those are the folks who you have to get in front of and actually engage. But it's important to understand, I can't stress this enough, understand the language that is used to pursue these policies that folks think are compassionate, but they really aren't. It's so interesting when the the Chesa Boudin recall was happening in San Francisco, those who were in favor of the recall, which were... It was all MAGA Republicans, I'm told. (laughs) Apparently. Yeah, they try, They really tried to say, you know, you're racist, you're, yeah. you're right wing. And even now we see this in Oakland where they're gathering signatures to recall the DA over there, Alameda. And she's also saying you're as bad as the January 6th insurrectionists. And it's just, wow. <laughs> There's some people who live in that echo chamber where they truly believe that that's the case. There are, what, 17 Republicans in San Francisco. I think you have one more here than we do in Seattle. It's clearly not being driven by that. It's condescending, and I wish Democrat voters would hear that and react a little bit differently than I see them reacting. 
uh, if you're going to tell that to me as a Republican, that it's only liberals who are upset, and we're like, screw you. I, I know <laughs> what I am. I know what's going on, especially with Chesa Boudin and, frankly, the school board director. I mean, the, the, first of all, it started generally with the Asian-American community in San Francisco organized, stepping up and saying, okay, no, 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 no. Talk about the one issue. Yeah, I mean, they're not driven by politics. I don't think most of these issues are even seen as inherently political. They become political because politicians are involved. But they said, I don't like what you're doing with our kids. This is absurd. We're seeing them suffer. Maybe we ought not to focus on the name of a school of a white supremacist. It's just so silly. And that's what drove that. And I think that that was a really important point for San Francisco, where people woke up, even though ultimately I think it was too late for the city, at least in the near term, they woke up and said, we can take this back. There is such a limit as being too far to one side. It's not okay with us anymore. And I think we might see some additional reform, additional ballot measures. I think so too. I, I think everything is headed in the right direction. I just, I think it's unfortunately a little too far gone if you're expecting within like the next year or two, which is I think how most of us think, if not, we want it like next month, some sort of fix. That's not going to happen in San Francisco. And there are a lot of other cities that are very close to a San Francisco where it might take a decade or more to get us back in the right direction. I think when you look at the Seattle Police Department, for example, you're not fixing the Seattle PD staffing issue within the next decade. It is not possible. It is simply not possible. They lost over 600 cops. I've got a story coming out soon. The staffing number that they give out is definitely not true. It is much lower than what they're saying, which is about 980-ish. For a city that has certainly grown over the course of the last decade, you have to go back to the 1980s. I think it was actually 1980 to get as low as we were a couple months ago. We're now lower than that. So we're nowhere near where we need to be. And cops are still leaving. That doesn't change overnight. You've changed the culture of policing in Seattle. You've got a lot of people who don't want to become cops anymore, and the ones who do don't want to work in Seattle. That's not going to change. That's going to take a lot of work, and that's assuming we get on the right path, and we're not there yet. Well, yeah, we have a similar issue, of course, here in San Francisco, getting staffing. Most, Most cities right now are dealing with precisely the same issue, and it's not a money issue. Uh, If it was, a lot of these cops would have stayed in the profession because they're getting a lot of money in a lot of these cities. They're leaving because they're not able to do the job that they signed up for. They're demonized unfairly. They're being judged by bad apples. This is one industry, one profession in which we judge everybody because of a handful of bad actors who cops loathe as much as any activist on the far left when we're talking about a bad cop because it makes them all look bad and they didn't sign up to be bad cops. They didn't sign up to hurt a community. They signed up to help it. And so they're the ones who push the hardest and sometimes the loudest for reforms, except they have to make sense. And it can't just be this broad brush that we're going to just completely dismantle and then reinvent policing. I, I give probably the only credit I give to the radicals. They were open after George Floyd with their intent. They said it. We want to dismantle systems of oppression and then rebuild it within our own political image. They believe all of these institutions are oppressive. They said that specifically about defund the police. I mean, they were very direct. That's what they did. And they hurt departments to the point where we're now seeing a rise in crime. Depending on where it is, you're seeing different kinds. Seattle is about to hit an all-time high number of homicides. All-time high. Some other cities... When you look nationally, violent crime is actually starting to trend down. It's a little bit disingenuous because you're comparing it to a historic high. So I'd rather look at it 
pre-2020, and we're nowhere near where we were. But it's, you know, it's going in the right direction, but not everywhere. In other places, you're seeing a rise in assaults. You're seeing a rise in property crimes. Like, this is because of what was done to the police departments. Um, okay, so what, what or, and I'll add this, who inspired you to pursue a career in writing, radio, hosting, and political commentary? I grew up listening to talk radio, and it was on all sorts of issues. It was not political. I, it wasn't my, Rush Limbaugh? It wasn't Rush Limbaugh. It was actually Howard Stern and Jay Thomas. Jay Thomas in Los Angeles did morning radio there. Eventually, yes, of course, Rush. I mean, he was, regardless of how anyone thinks about any of his positions, he was a brilliant broadcaster, and he was able to communicate in a way that allowed me to do my job now. If there was no Rush Limbaugh, there would not be talk radio as it is today. I, I got into radio when I was 15 years old. I was working at a... How is um, that legal? It, it, frankly, it wasn't legal, I'm pretty sure. And I remember skipping out on school to go and meet the program director of a sports radio station. It was a show that they were developing for kids, host, hosted by kids, for the Dodgers or around the Dodgers. And I was uh, big into baseball at the time, and that was my first radio gig. And then I realized, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. You were on a kid's Dodger I was, uh I was double play J. That was my, my nickname. <laughs> and it was so fun because, you know, you're a kid and you're going out on the field and you're meeting all the players, doing things that now don't impress me at all because I've done it a million times. But back then, of course, it does. And so it's really cool. And then you go in front of a microphone and you start to talk and perform and I always felt generally comfortable doing that. And that's when I knew this is what I was going to do. And I, you know, I was wondering whether or not I was going to truly pursue this as a career. When I was in college, I went to school, Occidental, ultimately with the goal of being a lawyer. And I took the LSATs. I got accepted to some schools. And at the last minute, I said, mm, I'm going to stay in radio. And I was working part time at the time. And it was the right decision, I think. Why politics and not Dodgers. Politics interests me more. There, there's more depth for me to talk about. I, I don't like talking about one issue. And I, there's a sports station in my building, and I don't understand it. It's like, what'd you talk about today? The Seahawks. Okay, what'd you talk about yesterday? Seahawks. <laughs> Every once in a while, you'll throw the Mariners in when they're doing well, and then when they're sucking again, Seahawks. I just, I, I don't find that interesting. I, I like to watch soccer, but I would never do a four-hour show about soccer. I started doing TV because it was a Tucker Carlson producer who saw one of my stories linked to in another story about going to Vancouver, British Columbia and looking at their, their heroin injection sites. And I did a couple hits for them. It was fine. I liked TV. Didn't really think it was going to do anything. And then Chop or Chaz happens. I'm on every single day. And then all of a sudden, all the other producers wanted me. I started to do other shows, and I realized, yeah, I can do this too. Are you going to move to TV, or is that, is that the goal? Is to, I'm I mean, doing... They won't let you talk for four hours, right? <laughs> yeah, <but>. that's true. <laughs> so my hits are, what, three to seven minutes, depending on the show. That's mm. how t cable television works, versus so it's much easier. But I like what I'm doing now, and uh, if it's TV only or radio only again in the future, it is what it is. Uh, well, I do want to talk about this Vancouver mm -hmm. injection site uh, because San Francisco officials, like Seattle officials, went up there and visited. And I remember seeing video of the safe injection site there. This is back in 2017. And it was you could see that there was this site. And then for about two to four blocks around the site was just a disaster zone. And I remember thinking stupidly that our leaders will go up there and surely they will see 
the the outer ring of craziness that was happening, and they wouldn't put that in our city, surely. But here we are. Everyone was racing to be the first. It was San Francisco, Seattle, Philadelphia, all visiting. And to your point, they saw what I saw. They saw the reality, but then they said, well, let's do it. Because there's this competition to out-progressive another city. You want to be the first. So when I talk about the radical left, I sort of separate it out into two different categories. On the one hand, you've got the people who see the destruction, see the consequences, but in good faith, they say short-term pain for long-term gain, that if we truly do it the way that we want, if we truly commit and we give it some time, it's going to lead to this great, wonderful city. Then you've got the people who, are, who view it like a cult, and they just I, I legitimately don't think they see what's going on, that they're just delusional. They've convinced themselves that they're not doing anything wrong. I don't always know where politicians fall within those two groups. And that's me being very generous because I could very easily just assume that they see it and they don't care for the most part, even though every once in a while there's a politician who I do think just likes chaos. I try not to think about people in those terms because that would be deeply depressing to live in a place where people legitimately see harm that they're doing or that their policies are causing and they're okay with it. I just refuse to believe that. Well, I mean, it's a trade-off, right? I mean, it's one of these, like, how, how much do I think people will tolerate? You know, what's the job of a politician to remain a politician? Yeah. Right? So the job is to stay in office. And if, if it's more likely that that will keep me in office and then get me booted from office, mm-hmm. well, then step right over it. Well, it's the voters, too. I mean, they're reacting to what they think the voters want. And, and voters in these cities generally say openly, I want the one who's the farthest to the left. We want the most progressive regardless of the consequences. And again, they probably fall into those two categories too, the people who view politics that way. And you're just playing to the crowd. It just so happens that places like a San Francisco or Seattle, Portland, they just have a lot more of those voters. At least that's the perception uh, than the other group, which is like, I'm going to go with the person who makes the most sense and does the best for my city and my community. Well, I was listening to this interview um, of a man who was a former drug addict who was explaining that one of the things that we were sold on with these safe injection sites is that people would do the drugs inside. And so it would somehow sort of help keep people from doing it in the streets. They would have a place to go and do it. And he was explaining why they don't do it inside the safe injection site because there are people in there, well-meaning people, with Narcan ready aggressively to bring you out of your high. Mm-hmm. And so if you have been waiting all day for this and this is you finally get, you know, you finally are, are about to get high. And then there's some, you know, again, sort of nurse standing there with Narcan. I'm not saying they want to die. I'm saying they, they want, want, they want to high. stay they, there. They, they want the most risque high. They, they don't think they're going to die. Maybe in the back of their minds, they acknowledge it's a clearly a possibility, but that's not what they're thinking in the moment. When you were in yeah. Vancouver and like just go up to literally anyone and say, why aren't you in there and let them tell you why they're not? And well, so that fairness, you would be informed by that? In fairness, many times they're passed out. I mean, many times they're literally just passed out. And this was before fentanyl was a significant issue where you're not getting through to them. They're not having a conversation with you. And the ones who will, you don't want to have a conversation with at that very moment. But remember when I talk about language, you call it a a safe injection site. That's how it was originally pitched. Shame on all of us who fell for that, because when you have a medical professional who's there to ensure that you do not die because of the behavior that you're engaged in, that by definition is not safe. You're making it safer for the individual. It is not safe. 
And they originally pitched it, at least in Seattle, San Francisco, and Philadelphia, especially Philadelphia. I spent a lot of time talking about Kensington, which has just been a total disaster. They tell us, they told us, this will get people into treatment. This will keep them alive for one more day so we can convince them to get into treatment. They do not pursue treatment. They do not push any of these people into treatment. They just continue to enable them. And ultimately, they will die. They will die an addict. They will either die on the streets or in subsidized housing. Them being in subsidized housing is not a success. That is a failure if they're dead. And why people just don't acknowledge that, although they're starting to, they're coming around to it. Kensington and Philadelphia, a neighborhood that's just been completely destroyed by, by drugs, that was determined to be the site for their first heroin injection site. A few weeks ago, the uh, council passed a bill that said, mm, you know, we're not going to do that in all but one neighborhood now. They should just completely get rid of it, but they're, they're clinging onto it, but it's a step in the right direction. I've seen some of the videos of, of... It's horrendous. Wow. And by the way, Narcan, not really working the same way that it used to. You've got different kinds of fentanyl that's being put out there. Narcan, by the way, only works with opioids, and it's not a guarantee. Some people think that it works for all drug overdoses, and it's a guarantee. It is not. Now they're mixing fentanyl with other drugs, including... Trank. It's that's the thing. In it's, it's also called like the zombie drug because mm-hmm. it eats away at your skin. And we've had cases in Washington where they lost a finger, an ear, didn't even realize it. That's what the drug is doing to these people. It kills the tissue, and you're high all the time, so you're not even noticing. And by the time someone notices, it's too late. That's spreading in a significant way. It started in not necessarily Philadelphia, the general region um, in Philly. It's now on the West Coast. And it's going to get across the country because, again, whatever... And Narcan doesn't work with it, right? Narcan, you usually have to do two treatments, and that's still not a guarantee. And on top of that, now you've got kids who are getting exposed to fentanyl. We've had a, a rash of deaths of toddlers gaining access to it. Some, it. It sometimes literally looks like candy. And now you've got pets who are getting... Oh, I'm not even making this up. They're overdosing because of the homelessness crisis that's pushed through by drug addiction. Fentanyl is just being left around. And the dog is licking it and ends up having an overdose. Like, if you don't care about kids or animals... Well, if you want to vote a revolt in San Francisco, mess with the dogs. Yeah. Like, that will, that will not stand, Well, if it sir. hasn't happened here uh, yet, <laughs> it will, unfortunately. Uh, the question from the audience. What do you think is at the root of homelessness that Seattle could focus on? You said, you know, let's talk about the root of it yeah. instead of just housing people. It's drug use. By mm-hmm. the, the actual definition of Root cause, according to the city, when you look at the legal documents, when they're suing opioid manufacturers, they're giving you the data. It's overwhelmingly caused by drug addiction. Overwhelming. And rather than treat the drug addiction, what did Seattle and Washington and Oregon do? They legalized drugs. Precisely the opposite of what you should be doing to get an addict to finally go on the right path. You told cops you can no longer leverage jail time over an addict to turn over their drug, their drug dealer. Before you could, you could say, hey, you're going to detox over this long weekend in jail. You know what it's like already. You've done it before. You're going to be miserable. I won't put you in jail. I won't even book you if you go ahead and tell me who your drug dealer is. The second that they legalized drugs, they took that tool away from officers. They also took the tool away from prosecutors and from judges to say, we're going to put you in jail unless you take this treatment that we're offering. Well, there's no jail time for drug addicts anymore if you're breaking the law. So we took a giant step. We took several steps backward, and we saw the results of that. Oregon, through the roof in drug overdoses. Fatalities, through the roof. 
their whole idea of, well, we're not going to criminalize, we're going to give people a ticket, and if they don't want to pay the ticket, they can go ahead and uh, go into treatment. Just call this number on the back of the ticket. Pretty much no one called. Shocker. Seattle, Washington in general, same exact thing. We have hit ever since 2018 where our prosecutor said we're no longer going to charge for personal possession. And then in 2020, we legalized. Every single year since then, we've seen a record high fatal overdose rate. Every single year. King County, where Seattle is, hit a new record two, three weeks ago as we're talking. Early October. They already hit a new record. It's over a thousand. I think the number now is like a thousand. I don't even want to give you a number because it'll be different tomorrow and it'll be different by the end of the year. For the year, it's already? It's already hit. That's how bad it is. And no one steps back and says, maybe we're pursuing the wrong strategy. And maybe they disagree with my strategy. They clearly do. But let's, okay. You haven't tried my strategy. Not in Seattle, not in Portland, frankly, not in San Francisco. What, what's the worst that can happen? You're already hitting record highs. What's your strategy? The strategy is a simple approach. You go to jail or you go into treatment when they're breaking the law. Sure, you'll be in jail for a day. Guess what? I'm going to be here tomorrow. I'm going to do the exact same thing. You're clearly breaking the law. We need to save you. That will work for a huge portion of people. When you look specifically in Marysville, Washington, I talk about that in the book. They implemented this policy, a simple carrot and stick approach. It saw huge successes. It's seen success in Austin where it's been used. It's seen some successes throughout the country when you allow the criminal... It can't be the only solution. Criminal justice cannot be the only part of this, but it has to be a part. And when you take that out, you're taking away the consequences. It turns out they clearly don't think they've hit rock bottom, being homeless and struggling every single day, stealing whatever they can so that they can afford the $1 or $2 pills uh, that fentanyl now go for. They don't think that that's rock bottom. So you're going to have to step in and you're going to have to help in that way. And it's actually compassionate for a lot of these people to say, I'm going to throw you in jail if you do not take this seriously. And if they don't like it in the moment, ask them once they're clean, how they feel. Well, so the gentleman that I was telling you about that I that I heard talking about drug use and the safe injection sites, he got clean in jail. Yeah. He said, I went to jail for theft, I believe. It wasn't drug possession, but he that was the, the first time he hadn't he didn't have access to you can or was do sort of the treatment in jail. Put the money into treatments in jail. And they don't even have to serve a full sentence if they're going through the program and they're taking it seriously. That's what Marysville just announced that as a new aspect to their their plan. They've got one of the few jails that does full detox, has staff, social workers, everything. And they say, look. You may not spend more than 12 days here if you're taking this seriously and you're showing interest and progress, and then you release them. And if they relapse, we'll be there for them. If they start breaking the law again, okay, well, you're going to go back to the system. And maybe this time you do a month. Turns out it works. Uh, How does Seattle's political environment differ from California's? Or maybe just Washington's political environment. It's, I feel like they're very similar, but I'm sure they're different in, in we, important ways. So Washington is considerably more passive aggressive, just in a general <laughs> sense. It's just How true. is that possible? I know. Come <laughs> visit. It, 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 it really is. And I think that there is, I think you have more pushback here in California than you do in Washington. You have so few Republicans in positions of power. You at least have, because you're just larger than, than we are. So you're going to have more voices. I think you have a little bit better diversity of thought within the media landscape generally than we do in Washington state. And I think that's that makes all the difference in the world sometimes. You may not ultimately see significant victories if you're a conservative, but you're at least going to see the debates. 
And I think that's why you've seen such a significant focus on Seattle in particular, is because there's just no debate. And so national news, at least on the conservative side, they're interested in that. They want to shine a spotlight on cities in which there's no other side. There's just the one side or various versions of the one side. Well, it also seems like here we've got, you know, we've got San Francisco, Bay Area, we've got Los Angeles, even San Diego. And so there's sort of multiple urban centers in Washington state. It seems like there's sort of Seattle and then there's just sort of, yeah, Spokane, and then there's like five yeah. people and the, <laughs> the rest of it. And, and it's a little less balanced in that way. Clearly that's the case. And I, especially when you look at Washington and Oregon, you have tales of two sides of the state. You have Western Washington and Western Oregon, where they're very, very, very far to the left. Eastern side of both states are like, can we just join Idaho? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is never going to happen, but God bless them for at least they're involved, which I like. I just wish they would be involved in a slightly different way because it's not going to happen. None of the states nor Congress will allow for that. But despite the debate getting so heated to the point where they're moving legislation along to at least have the conversation, it's interesting no one in Multnomah County, where Portland is, None of those lawmakers who basically rule the state step back and say, maybe we ought to address the underlying reason why they're so unhappy that they don't want to be with us anymore. Just none of those kind of, oh, they're just rubes. They're white supremacists. They're mega Republicans. That's all you hear. It's Mm -hmm. just like, that's not a great way to govern. Agreed. Well, we are running out of time here. We've got time for one more question. And for this one, I will ask... We will try to end on a happy note. What advice do you have for individuals looking to engage in constructive political discourse in today's environment? Always remember to be civil. Always remember to be civil. Sometimes difficult. There's no doubt about it. And oftentimes you will encounter people who don't want to be civil to you, especially if you are on the opposite political side of um, the radical left. The second that you're not civil is the second that the entire movement is painted by that one action. I tell everyone to always be that one person who makes that one phone call or sends that one email or text or tweet advancing an idea and doing it in the most civil way. And I think if enough of these one people do just that, we'll start to see some significant wins. But also don't view it so as inherently partisan, because like I said, Republicans aren't going to win in these cities, at least not yet. That's for the second book that I write. Many thanks to Jason Rance, host of The Jason Rance Show and author of What's Killing America Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. Jason, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I'm Melissa Kane. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of the Commonwealth Club Radio Program. Today, you heard Jason Rance in conversation with Melissa Kane. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club. Join us again next week as Kevin Adler lays out a compassionate plan with practical steps for addressing homelessness. Until then, you can learn more about us and our events at commonwealthclub.org. Find thousands of our programs on Apple Podcasts, Audible, and YouTube. When you're in the Bay Area, let us welcome you in person to the Commonwealth Club of California. To hear the entire hour-long version of these conversations, download the program from the club's website or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.